Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here to worship you today, and I pray that we would listen to the moving of the Holy Spirit and that you would speak through me so that what I say would be in accordance with your will. So be with us now and speak through me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for the message today is The Vindication of God. You know, the word vindication means to be proven right. In a court of law, sometimes a defendant is found not guilty, but that does not necessarily prove their innocence or prove them to be right. It simply may mean that the evidence was not enough for the jury to find the defendant guilty. But when it comes to the vindication of God in the scope of the great controversy, this is not simply God being set off or let off the hook like, well, I guess you were right, God, but we're not sure. No, God is setting forth in the plan of redemption and the plan of salvation and in the work that he is doing on this earth, he has set forth a plan so that we, as well as onlooking universes, or worlds, I should say, can be convinced of God's fairness and God's justice and God's mercy and of God's love and of everything that God does. And so in our scripture reading, Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 1 actually, Paul sets forth this idea that he actually picks up from Psalms, and we're going to build on that as we get into the message for today. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and this is built on the idea after Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, where Paul shows that whether you are a believer a Jew or a Christian, or you are a heathen, no matter what your upbringing, you have all sinned and you are all facing God's condemnation. So then he asks the question, what advantage then hath a Jew or what advantage then has the chosen people of God? What profit is there of circumcision? In other words, if we are all facing condemnation for falling short of God's glory, some might ask, aren't we at a disadvantage for knowing more? Because we're all bent towards sinning and therefore we're probably going to end up in a worse place because we know so much. But then he says, no, hang on. There is an advantage. And he says, much every way chiefly, because the, unto them were committed the oracles of God. Well, might the verse read today, what advantage then hath the remnant church? Much every way chiefly, because unto us have been committed the oracles of God. Now, then he goes on to say, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief Make the faith of God without effect. In other words, just because you don't believe what the Bible says, and just because you know somebody else who says, I'm just not convinced about God. I've heard what you said. I see what the Bible says, but that's not enough for me. What Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what any finite human being says about God. If you choose 
to not believe, that does not make the faith of God without effect. And then he goes on to say, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written, and now he's speaking to God, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. So no matter what anybody else says, doesn't matter if it's your pastor or your friend or your parent or whoever it may be, no matter what they say about God and no matter what they say about the word of God, at the end of the day, compared to God, let God be true, but every man be a liar. Because a day is coming when God will be justified or proven right in what he has said in his word. And he will be clear when he offers judgment. Now, Paul is getting this idea from Psalm 51. And if you see what David is saying in Psalm 51, what Paul is saying here in Romans 3 starts to make a little bit more sense. Psalm 51. Now, this is a famous chapter because this is the chapter that David wrote after he sinned with Bathsheba. After Nathan came and said to him, you are the man... And then David pronounced his own judgment upon himself, let him repay fourfold, which he did with the loss of four sons. Notice what he says in this chapter. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, this is a good confession. He's saying, please cleanse me, God. Please forgive me. But now notice what he says next in verse 4. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now, this is where we see the connection to Romans 3, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Now, what's David saying here? God, I need your forgiveness. I've sinned wickedly. I have done a very evil, horrible thing. And I know, God, that you are a God of mercy. And I know that you are going to speak and say that I have been forgiven. But God, here's the thing. I care so much about the honor of your name. I understand that you are putting the honor of your name on the line by saying that I have been forgiven for this evil sin. And so when we hear that David is a man after God's own heart, notice Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that David was not a man after God's own heart while he was sinning with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. That was not when he was a man after God's own heart. And people use that to say, David was a man after God's own heart. Therefore, I can do whatever wicked sin that I want and I'll still be a man after God's own heart. No, that's not what that's saying. We see David being a man after God's own heart when he says, God, I really, really sinned in about the worst way imaginably possible. And you are forgiving me because of your mercy. But I understand that when you forgive me, you are putting your name on the line. And when you speak, you need to be clear 
in what you are saying by saying David is a forgiven man. David is is clear. David's saying that you might be justified or proven right when you speak, and you will be clear when you judge. And so David doesn't simply say, please forgive me. He also says, wash me thoroughly or thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. In other words, God, in order for you to be proven right in what you say, I not only need your forgiveness, I understand that my heart needs to be changed so that I will never do such a wicked thing again because I understand that you have set your name on the line by clearing me. Because think about it this way. The onlooking universe looks at David and they see this awful thing that he has done. The angels see this horrible thing that he has done. And the angels have friends that were kicked out of heaven. And then they're saying, you're going to let that guy come in here? On what basis? And David understands that God can say, on the basis of the fact that by my blood, I shed the blood of the Son of God... And David accepted that sacrifice and offered a confession. And not only that, his heart was changed. And on that basis, I have forgiven him because his heart was broken. God was not vindicated by David's unfaithfulness. God was not proven to be right when David sinned with Bathsheba. However, when David confessed his sin in such a manner and opened his heart to God and says that you might be justified when you speak and that you might be clear when you judge, that is when God's name was brought back into honor by David's confession. And sometimes... I think we've lost that understanding when it comes to the plan of salvation. So many times I hear of people who presume upon God's grace while they continue to sin with that grace that has been given to them. And David understood that if he were to continue to sin in such a way after God had gone so far and come down so low to offer forgiveness and salvation to each one of us, to go back to that would be to to dishonor God's name. And, you know, I see something that's happened in the church. And maybe I've said this here before, but I'll say it again because it's worth repeating. How many times have you heard somebody ask the question, is this a salvational issue? And when have you ever heard that question asked where the intent behind that question was to uphold the honor and glory of God's name? No, if we're honest with ourselves, the reason why we ask that question is because our carnal heart is looking for an excuse to lower the standard that God has set in Scripture. And so the motivation behind that question shows a carnality to our thinking. Now, there might be some 
some times and places where that is an appropriate question, so I'm not saying that there's never a time. I've seen some extremism that is rightfully dealt with with that kind of a question. But by and large, when that question is asked in the church, it's not to uphold a high standard. It's to lower the standard. And when the standard gets lowered we end up seeing things come into the church that we never would have thought of would have been found in God's last day church. You know, think, thinking of this concept of God's vindication or God being proven right against the charges of Satan, one of the most obvious examples in Scripture is the book of Job. And I've spent some time in this book recently studying this book. And in Job chapter 1, verse 8, after Satan comes wandering to and fro in the earth, in verse 8, God says to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and escheweth evil? You know, Job was a thorn in the side of Satan. Because Satan went around saying, you know, God's law can't be kept. God's law is unfair. We were perfect angels in a perfect environment. And even we couldn't keep that law. And then God arbitrarily kicked us out because we were asking questions he didn't want to be asked. So he just kicked us out to get rid of our problem. And so then God could say, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, you know... <laughs> Job is faithful to you because everything's great for him. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of possessions. He has children. He has a wife. Everything's going right for him. But I guarantee you, God, that if you take that away from him, he will curse you to your face. And so God says, fine. And there's some things about this story that some of the finer detail, perhaps, I have a few questions about that God will clear up when we get to the kingdom. It doesn't in any way make me doubt God's sovereignty or his goodness. But Job lost all of his children. That's a tough one. And I dare say that there have been more than a few people in the church who have gone through such a terrible ordeal who have lost their hold on God because of such a thing. And mind you, I can't imagine anything worse as a parent than what happened to Job here. You know, he lost all of his possessions and the cattle were stolen and the flocks and whatever. But for his children to be taken away, that's, that's a horrible ordeal to be placed through. And if that weren't enough, he remains faithful. And then Satan comes back to God and says, oh, skin for skin. If you let me touch his health, then he'll curse you. So it wasn't enough for Satan to say, oh, well, I took all of his children away. I guess you're right, God. No, he says, let me touch his health. And so he gets this horrible affliction of boils. 
And we know the story I'm summarizing it largely. I mean, it becomes so bad that Job's wife says, curse God and die. And it wasn't Job's wife that God spoke of when he said, have you considered my servant Job? God didn't lift her up in that story. He lifted Job up to to Satan. And here's the point. We understand what happens. If you read through the story, it says that Job sinned not with his lips. I mean, he was a model of faithfulness, even though he didn't understand what was happening. He didn't know that there was a great controversy between Christ and Satan, where Satan and Christ were debating Job's faithfulness and everything that was happening to him was because of that debate. He didn't know any of that. And as his friends who don't understand what's happening try to speak on God's behalf, and it was so bad that at the end God said, I'm, my anger and wrath is kindled against you, and Job had to offer a sacrifice so that God's wrath wouldn't be poured out on them. During the midst of these unfaithful friends who are presuming to speak in God's name against him, he could say, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives and that I shall see him in the latter days. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That is the mind of faith that is speaking there. And yet many of us, if placed in one-tenth of the trying circumstances that Job passed through, start to question if God is still leading in our lives. And the reality is that through Job's faithfulness, by the strength and power of God, God was vindicated through his faithfulness. You know, in James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, as the book of James is coming to a close... James gives some examples of what it means to have patience and to suffer through affliction. Verses 10 and 11 in James 5, Take my brethren the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And we know the end of the story that Job was blessed with more children and more possessions. But that word for patience in verse 10 and, and of having an, of, of enduring and having the patience of Job is the same word as Revelation 14, 12 and the patience of the saints. Listen, friends, if you think that the patience of the saints is simply learning to have a cheerful disposition when you're running five minutes late, that's a good little start. But the patience of the saints will have the patience of Job. And Job's faithfulness brought vindication to God. God was proven right. Satan didn't keep coming back after that to say, oh, well, you know, he's just faithful because you've blessed him. He's just faithful. He had nothing left to say when Job remained faithful, when he lost his children, when he lost all of his money, when his wife is even telling him to curse God and die, and when all of his friends basically turn into enemies. And all he has left is his walk with God. It's just him and God. That's all he has left. 
and he loses his health too. That's, and so all he has left, he doesn't have health, he doesn't have money, he doesn't have children, his wife has turned against God. All he has left is him and God. And he doesn't even understand what's happening. And God could look to Satan and to the onlooking universe and say, see, through my power, I can have people on this earth who even when they don't understand what is happening in the worst possible circumstances, remain faithful to me. You know, we think of other stories. Joseph, taken, he's betrayed by his brothers, and then he's thrown into prison for retaining his honor and and integrity with Potiphar's wife. You think of Daniel, who was taken as a captive. We're studying this in our lesson quarterly right now. And of their faithfulness and of how every time they were faithful, and you go through the whole first six chapters of Daniel, every time they had faithfulness, it was a vindication to God. They didn't eat the king's meat or his, the wine which he drank. The three Hebrews didn't bow down, and they were the only ones. There were many Hebrews that were there, and they, they were the only ones who didn't bow down. And God was vindicated because of their faithfulness. You know, you think of the story of Elijah, which is interesting. His faithfulness in the first three and a half years where there was famine and drought, all the way till Mount Carmel and to when he ran ahead of the king in a driving rainstorm, was a vindication to, to God that there were faithful people in the land of Israel that despite the prevailing idolatry in the land, God would have a people who would be faithful. And then, interestingly, Elijah got afraid because of Jezebel, and he ran off to Mount Horeb, but that did not vindicate God. God was not vindicated. In fact, we're told that there would have been a much greater revival in Israel if he hadn't run away like that. Again, you know, a lot of times we think about, well, here we are living in the year 2020, and there's probably some of us here today that never would have dreamed we would have seen this year come to pass before Jesus came. Here we are in the year 2020, and so oftentimes I see this mentality in the church, and again, I've mentioned it, where we are living our lives in a way where it's like, as long as we don't do too many bad things, we'll just kind of scrape by and barely get through the kingdom, and whew, that was a close call, but wow, we made it. We, I know we were doing some things that God didn't want us to do, but at least we were saved by grace through faith, even though there were things in our lives that weren't good. Is that the mentality that God is looking for from his last day people? I want to read to you a statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 68 and 69. The plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. Now, if you read this whole chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets, the preceding paragraphs make it very clear the infinite sacrifice that Christ made to come to this earth. So she's not minimizing this, okay? It's an infinite cost, an infinite sacrifice for Christ to come to this earth to redeem man. But she's saying this, it was not for this alone. 
as, as significant as that is. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Did you hear that? It was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds, as well as upon man, the Savior looked forward when just before his crucifixion, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. That's from John 12. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, But before all the universe, it would justify God or prove God to be right and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. It would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. So notice that when Christ came to this earth, it opened the door of heaven to men, but it also set before the universe a justification for God and why he has dealt with Satan in the manner that he has. And then the quote goes on to say that that Satan from the beginning tried to show that God's law was faulty. And that's why we as God's last day people are in this controversy. We're right in the crosshairs of the battle between Christ and Satan, where God is saying, I will have a people on the earth who will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and have the patience of the saints. And Satan is saying, you want to bet? Did you see their lives this last week? And you're, gonna, you're saying that's going to be your people who will stand on Mount Zion? Really, God? That's the great controversy that we are facing. And sometimes it's a good reminder for us to go back and to see the promises of Scripture and from the Spirit of Prophecy to help us understand what God can do for us and through us here in this great battle here on this earth. This is from Faith I Live By, page 23. The Savior took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life that men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. Then she quotes John fourteen thirty. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. And, you know, we read that and we're like, yeah, well, that's Jesus. He was God. He was perfect. He's not like us. We can't be that way. But that's not what inspiration says. The very next sentence says, so it may be with us. And in fact, if you want to remember the statement, this is rather interesting to me, and I think this is purely a coincidence, but if you look at Faith I Live by page 23, Desire of Ages, page 123, and Great Controversy, page 623, they all say basically the same thing. Kind of a random coincidence. Faith I Live by 23, Desire of Ages 123, and Great Controversy 623. And I'm going to read each one of them to you, just so that you can see. Now, there's some slight variations, but they basically say the same thing. And so here we see Christ came in in our humanity. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. And then it says, so it may be with us. Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he came to make us partake of the divine nature, so long as we are united to him by faith, sin 
has no more dominion over us. And then the very next sentence says, we need not retain one sinful propensity. Not one. So many times, though, we're saying, is it a salvational issue if I'm still kind of proud about how good I am at this thing that I do for my career? Isn't that some sanctified pride? Or isn't it okay for me to be a little bit competitive with people at work so that I can come out ahead? Isn't it a little... No, we need not retain one sinful propensity. As we partake of the divine nature, hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong are cut away from the character and we are made a living power for good. Ever learning of the divine teacher, daily partaking of his nature, we cooperate with God in overcoming Satan's temptations. So that's Faith I Live by, page 23. And this is all based off of the Bible, verse John 14, 30, which says, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Now notice Desire of Ages 122, 123. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin, not even by a thought. Did he yield to temptation? So it may be with us. And it goes on to say... So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. God reaches for the hand of faith in us to direct it to lay fast hold upon the divinity of Christ that we may attain to perfection of character. Now, in this great controversy where God offers salvation to man through the death of Jesus on the cross, we also see God's vindication. And we gain a bit of a better understanding of why time has gone on as long as it has. So Christ came to this earth, he died on the cross, offered salvation to man, and then we sometimes wonder, why are we still here? If the cross settled the issues in the great controversy where God's character was proven right against the charges of Satan, then why would God's character allow 2,000 years more of sin to take place where Satan continues to make his charges against God. Have you ever wondered that? You know, if you think about this, and you may have heard of this before, Christ had three and a half literal years of ministry that ended with a deadly wound and was followed by a resurrection, and he went on to heaven. Well, then Antichrist came along, and Satan said, it's my turn, and he gave his power, seat, and authority to the first beast of Revelation 13, who were given three and a half prophetic years to show what their government was like. So Christ had three and a half literal years to show this is what heaven is like if you follow me. Antichrist shows what heaven would have become like if the angels and Lucifer had taken over heaven. And at the end of the three and a half years, uh, prophetically, we have a deadly wound. But just before that deadly wound, there's a little thing called the French Revolution, which turned into utter anarchy. And if you want to know what heaven would have turned into if Satan had gained control, it would have been the French Revolution. Friends turning on friends, everybody fighting over each other to get to the top. And eventually there would have been angels that would have formed a conspiracy against Lucifer so that they could have taken him out so they could have um, usurped his authority. 
It would have been total and utter chaos. And so that was what happens at the end of the three and a half prophetic years, followed by a deadly wound, and just as Christ was resurrected, eventually the deadly wound will be healed, that beast will be resurrected in time for the final conflict, which is where God's people come in. He raised up a people. After the deadly wound in 1798, he raised up a people in the time of the judgment hour in 1844 because God's law had been forgotten, especially the Seventh-day Sabbath, and God cannot be vindicated by those who profess to follow him with all of their hearts when they are even in ignorance breaking his commandments. And so he needed a people, a movement, who would keep all of the commandments of God. You know, God is not vindicated by breaking the law. You know, you look at this, the three angels' messages, which describe our message and mission. We are to worship him in the hour of his judgment, which connects to the fourth commandment. And God is not vindicated by breaking the Sabbath. God is not vindicated by Sunday keeping. But if we're honest, there are faithful Sunday keepers who are living up to the light that they have far better than many Seventh-day Adventists. And we look at the rest of the commandments. God is not vindicated by idolatry, by taking God's name in vain, lying, stealing, cheating, committing adultery, killing, or covetousness. God is not vindicated by any sin in our lives. Now I'm going to read to you that statement from Great Controversy, page 623. So we've seen Faith I Live by page 23. Desire of Ages, page 123. Now we're going to look at Great Controversy, page 623. And it starts in page 622. Here's what we read. The time of trouble, such as never was, is soon to open upon us. And we shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to obtain or too lazy to obtain. You know, one of the reasons why I think people are afraid of the time of trouble is because we're so lazy in our Christian experience that we know we're not ready for it. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that we're lazy in our devotional time, lazy in the morning with devotions, lazy in the evening with devotions, lazy throughout the week, and then we wonder why we're scared about the time of trouble. It's because we're not striving with all of our might and power by the grace of God to get to know the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind so that we're ready to stand no matter what crisis may come our way. Going on, the quote says, It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality, but this is not true of the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. In that time of trial, every soul must stand for himself before God. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness." And then going on, now while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should, see, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Now you'll notice the similar line of thought to faith I live by and desire of ages. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. 
Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold, some sinful desire is cherished, by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. Now notice what she says next. Earlier she said, so it may be with us. Now notice this time. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. One reason why we haven't yet entered into that time of trouble is because God is still looking for people who profess to keep the commandments of God who are in such a condition who keep the commandments of God. That is where we are right now as a church. We are the Laodicean church, thinking that we are fine, thinking that we are rich and increased with goods, thinking that we have the faith that is needed to stand through the final trial. And Christ is saying to many of us, unless you repent, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now I'm going to read to you a couple of statements and we're going to wrap this up here in the next few minutes. This is Acts of the Apostles, page 531. None need fail of attaining in his sphere to perfection of Christian character. By the sacrifice of Christ, provision has been made for the believer to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. God calls upon us to reach the standard of perfection and places before us the example of Christ's character. In his humanity, perfected by a life of constant resistance of evil, the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life attain to perfection of character. This is God's assurance to us that we too may obtain complete victory before the believer has held out the wonderful possibility of being like Christ, obedient to all the principles of the law. And the promise is seen in Revelation 3.20 where Christ is standing at the door knocking and he's saying, let me come in. In verse 20 and in verse 21, he says, once you let me come in, he says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. And then Desire of Ages, page 680, Christ designs that heaven's order, heaven's plan of government, heaven's divine harmony shall be represented in his church on earth. Where is it to be represented? In his church. Thus in his people he is glorified or vindicated. Through them, the sun of righteousness will shine in undimmed luster to the world. Christ has given to his church ample facilities that he may receive a large revenue of glory from, from his redeemed purchased possession. He has bestowed upon his people capabilities and blessings that they may represent his own sufficiency. The church endowed with the righteousness of Christ is his depository in which the riches of his mercy, his grace, and his love are to appear in full and final display. Christ looks upon his people and their purity and perfection as the reward of his humiliation and the supplement of his glory. Christ, the great center from whom radiates all glory. Notice that in the church is to be the full and final display of the righteousness of Christ. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy that we are a part of, was raised up at this time of earth's history to be the depository of the righteousness of God in which God is vindicated through his church. 
We are to be upholding the highest standard in Scripture, and now more than ever is not the time for us to be conforming to the world. Now, as I close, I'm going to just give you something to think about. This is an article written by my friend, Pastor Victor Vaughn. He's a pastor in Michigan. It was published in Fulcrum 7 and Advindicate. You can check it out. It was published just this past week. And he asks some questions. The title of the article is this, When Did It Become Acceptable? Now listen carefully. When did it become acceptable to only attend church and not Sabbath school? When did it become acceptable to not attend prayer meetings? When did it become acceptable to value vocation more than mission? And by the way, I'm not reading everything that he's asked. I'm just giving you a snapshot. When did it become acceptable to wear jewelry everywhere except to church and sometimes even in church? When did it become acceptable to not discipline people guilty of grievous sins and to let them hold office in the church? When did it become acceptable for our institutions of higher learning to teach things in opposition to church standards like coffee drinking, evolution, women's ordination, contemplative spirituality? When did it become acceptable to doubt the veracity of the spirit of prophecy? When did it become acceptable for our hospitals to to perform abortions? When did it become acceptable to divorce when there are no biblical grounds? When did it become acceptable for those so divorced to remarry and still be members in good standing in the church? When did it become acceptable for men and women to live together out of wedlock and still be members in good standing? When did it become acceptable to dress like the world instead of dressing modestly? When did it become acceptable to call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist or a Christian for that matter when you don't live like one? When did it become acceptable to let these things go on in the church without the membership standing firm and speaking out against them? And then he says, these things were once unacceptable, but now many have embraced them wholeheartedly. We have allowed the unacceptable to become acceptable and the acceptable to become unacceptable. Therefore, I must ask, he says, when did it become unacceptable to preach the truth in the Adventist church? When did it become unacceptable to speak out against the sins of the church? And I have to say this, friends, because I've heard it say so many times, be careful, we have visitors here today. And you know how many times I've heard visitors come up to me and say, thank you, I've never heard the Bible spoken so clearly before. The visitors don't have a problem with the the preaching of the truth for this time. You do. And you use the visitor as your cover to try to keep the truth from being preached in the church. And the very truth that God has raised up to reach the visitor because we're living in the hour of God's judgment where his name is going to be honored and vindicated before the universe. We're trying to dumb down the message and don't let the trumpet sound because we're ashamed of a message that we're not living by. And God is looking for a people on this earth who will by the grace of God say, I love Jesus so much, I realize that I have sinned as David has. Now, hopefully not the way he did, but even if you have, God can have mercy and forgive you. He really can. But many of us want to think that if we sin, we can continue to live in sin. And God is looking for faithful saints at this time of earth's history who, like David, will say, God, I have sinned wickedly. Please cleanse me thoroughly from my sin. Because when you speak in the judgment and you say that I have been justified by faith, you are putting your name on the line to say that I have been justified. And God, I do not want my life to dishonor your name. 
And I would challenge you today in your thinking, when you think about whatever it is that you're thinking about doing, ask yourself the question, does this honor God's name? Or does this just simply fulfill my selfish satisfactions that I can paper over and say, well, God's grace will cover me while I continue to live a life of sin. Listen, friends, God loves us. He has grace. He will abundantly pardon for the thing we've done the 1500th time. But God also is saying, yes, I will forgive you that 1500th time, but I'm telling you that can be the last time and should be the last time if you really love me. And that is why when I look out at the church today, I see people bringing all sorts of specious idolatry into the church. And I'm sorry, I know this is probably going to offend some people, but I'm going to say it anyway, because this is what I see happening in the church. We start off with, you know, you see various issues of adornment where people are painting themselves up. And the next thing you see, simple wedding bands, which turn into diamond wedding rings, which turn into necklaces and earrings. And then we just say, oh, we're marching design. No, we're not. If we're not following what the Bible says? When are we going to go back to following what the Bible says, says and say, I love Jesus so much that I would never do anything to dishonor his name living in the hour of God's judgment? God is looking for a people who will live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And as we seek to enter into the heavenly Canaan, God is looking for people who love him so much that they're more concerned about the vindication of God's name and the honor and glory of God's name than they are about saying, maybe we can just squeak by and barely get through the kingdom. That was a close call. So I want to challenge you, friends. I realize this may have hit close to home for some of you, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody in particular. But I am trying by God's grace to point us to the high standard of the high calling that God has given us as Seventh-day Adventists for this time. And it's way too late in earth's history to become more and more like the world. We need to be more and more heavenly-minded and ready to enter into the kingdom. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.